mess of it series. One of the great things about the decor up front is that every week our poinsettia keeps getting deader. Some of you have been following along with that. Uh, next week it'll be missing. And next week we start a new sermon series as uh, the church calendar turns to the season of Lent. And uh, we have a worship service tonight, a brief uh, hymn, uh, excuse me, sort of a hymn sing worship service Ash Wednesday Lent prep time tonight at five if you'd like to uh, join us in the gathering place. It'll be in the gathering place tonight at five. Before we uh, dive in, I just want to root us in the book where we're going to be. We've been in the book of Judges and it's maybe worth taking a step back and reflecting on where that book gets situated in the overall scope of God's Word. And so there are a couple of different ways to think about it, but in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and God creates in the garden a place where his kingdom and his values are perfectly seen. God is in his throne or on his throne, and the garden is like a, a temple where his kingdom is realized. And the man and the woman serve as priests. They serve as people who live under his rule. And God is clear about what a life of obedience will mean. And it will mean fellowship with him. It will mean fellowship with creation. It will mean fellowship uh, between people. It will mean fellowship with self. And then, of course, as the page turns, sin disrupts all of that. And we watch as that disruption fractures the way in which God's kingdom is experienced. And so you and I are living on this side of this fracture in the kingdom of God. And so our hearts are not immediately drawn to serve our king. And our hearts are not immediately drawn to the will and the laws of God when he says this is the way that you can flourish as a community. And our hearts are no longer drawn to think best of our neighbor and to seek their welfare, right? We are now selfish. We do what is right in our own eyes. And yet there is this movement in which the kingdom of God has come and is coming. And so when we turn to the very end of the Bible, we see God sitting on his throne. That's the very center of the picture in Revelation 21, 22, right? John takes us, we see the, the, the heavenly kingdom of God coming down and we see the the outside of it, and then we're led into it. We see the streets, we see the river, and then as we get closer and closer, we get to the very throne of God, and that's where the picture, and that's where the voice comes from. 
And so we see God in his kingdom fully realized. And right, there's no division between God and people. There's no division between people and each other. Creation has been restored. There's no uh, pain or trying. People have been restored to themselves and the kingdom is realized again. Now the reason we start here is that there's there are two uh, things that can draw us when we think about our lives and the mess we make of things. We can either go back to where we were and allow ourselves to be driven by trying to go backwards. And sometimes we live this way, right? We, we have a situation in our life, we have a trial in our life, and we imagine that the way to fix it is by going back, as if we're going to go back to the garden, and everything that we do should focus on going back. But the Word of God says, remember the past, remember where you've been, remember how God created it good, but remember how your heart is being drawn toward a kingdom that is coming. And so we both acknowledge and recognize History, the past, what we've gone through, but we're also recognizing how God is drawing us forward. And Judges is a book of the Bible that's situated between these two poles of God's kingdom. And in many ways, what we see is in the book of Judges, here are a people who have forgotten what it means to live with God rightly as their king. And if you have your Bible open, if you look up on the screen, the first verse we have is, in those days Israel had no king. It's kingdom language. People are refusing to see that God is sitting on the throne. They're refusing to see that they are God's citizens. Citizens of God's kingdom. And that their hearts are made for more than the mess they find themselves in. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it helps us to situate ourselves in the the reality of your kingdom that unless we have you on the throne of our hearts, we will be drawn in the wrong directions. And Judges is one of those books that helps us to see hearts drawn into the wrong places. And so open our hearts and our lives this morning as we read. Amen. Judges 18, verse 1, in those days Israel had no king, and if we go back, chapter 17 includes another phrase, and it's everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And there's a shift in the last five chapters of Judges. Previous to chapter 17, uh, what we found was that uh, God, or excuse me, that Israel did what was evil in uh, in the eyes of God. And so even how Israel acted was seen under the view, the eyesight of God. That was 
all over the book of Judges, Judges 2, 3, 4, 6, 10, 13, the Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of the, of the Lord. But when we get to chapter 17, something shifts. And the, the author of Judges says, things are so bad, it's not even, even evil in the eyes of the Lord anymore. It's so bad that people are just doing whatever they want. It's almost as if God has been removed from the picture. And when God gets removed from the picture, when he is no longer the king, this is what happens. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into the inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Now, up on the screen are two maps, and for us to really get a sense of where this story is taking place and how it's taking place, we've got to get a sense of some geography. And so the, the map on the left side of the screen, you can see that red arrow is pointing to where the tribe of Dan is supposed to be. And so Joshua, when the Israelites are entering into the land of Canaan, gives very specific directions about where each tribe is going to settle. And Dan is going to settle kind of where the Philistines are living. They're supposed to drive them out. But what we read in this verse is that the Danites have been unsuccessful. And so instead of continuing to try... Instead of listening to what God wants them to do, instead of taking what God has given them as their rightful gift, the Danites say, you know what, we're going to do something far easier and we're going to go and move north. And so the city of Dan, that second map where that second arrow is, that's where, the, that's where we're heading today. That's the ultimate location where Dan is located. And that is a city that we're going to want to pay attention to because it shows up a lot in the rest of the Old Testament. Now, on the very bottom of the map, you can kind of see on the, in the blue there, the top of the word Joppa, which is part of where Dan is supposed to be. And so there's a lot of distance here. And so that's where we're moving. That's where we should be, but that's where we are. So with that map sort of helping us to get grounded, we'll go back to the chapter. Verse 2, So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah to Eshtol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They said, go explore the land. And so they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. And when they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, who we met earlier in the chapter 17, and they asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing here? Why are you here? And the Levi told them that Micah had done for him and said, he's hired me and I'm his priest. And they said to him, please inquire of God. Notice it's not the covenant name for Lord. It's not Yahweh, but God, to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, go in peace your journey has the Lord's approval. Notice he didn't actually pray, he just says something. So the five men left and came to Laish, that's also another name for Dan, where they saw that the people were living in safety like the Sidonians at peace and secure. And they, since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. They lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. And when they returned to Zorah and Eshtol, their fellow Danites asked them, how did you find things? And they answered, come on! 
on, let's attack them. We've seen the land and it's very good. Aren't you you're going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. And when you go there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatsoever. And 600 men of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zorah and Ashtol. And on their way, they set up camp near Kirith-Jerium in Judah. And that's why the place west of Kirith-Jerium is called Manhana Dan to this day. And from there, they went to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. And so they're making their way north. And the five men who spied the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, some household goods, and an Image overlaid with gold, and ephod is a religious uh, robe. Now you know what to do. So they turned in there, went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place, and greeted him, and the 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had spied out the land went inside, took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, with, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. And when the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, what are you doing? They answered him, shh, be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you would serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as a priest rather than just one man's household? And the priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. And when they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. And as they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you? And you called out your men to fight. He replied, You took the gods I have and my priest and went away. What else do I have now? How can you ask? What's the matter with you? The Danites answered, don't argue with us or some of the men might get angry and attack you and your family and they will lose their lives. So the Danites went on their way and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against the people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they had lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. And the city was in the valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time. The house of God was in Shiloh. This is the word of the Lord. I can't help but ask the question, why in the world is a chapter like this in the Bible? A long time ago when I was in seminary, one of the things that I sort of committed to myself and we talked about as friends was preaching on passages that no one else preaches on, or at least that we never heard sermons on as kids. And I, I for one, maybe you have, I've never heard a sermon on Judges chapter 18, because it is a strange chapter. And it is really hard to know what in the world God is doing in putting a chapter like this in the Bible. 
And scholars, in many ways, have the same question. It's hard down through the ages, whether they're Jewish scholars or Christian scholars, what is a chapter like this supposed to mean for God's people as they are called to live lives of obedience, to follow after Jesus, to be part of the the church, to be part of the God's answer to the problem of evil in the world and pointing to Jesus Christ? And in many ways, a chapter like this is, we'll say it's embarrassing, but if you're here yesterday morning and you're thinking, oh, I hope someone comes for the first time to church, a chapter like this is like, is this what the Bible has to offer? I was struggling with that question, and then I read an article uh, from a chaplain in Dearborn, Michigan. So Dearborn, Michigan has the, uh, is known as the place with the highest Arab concentration in the country. So Dearborn, Michigan has the highest percentage of Arab people living there. And so there's a, a chaplain there who is serving primarily Muslim college students, and so this chaplain is talking with uh, one of the students, and uh, the student says to the chaplain, you know, you and I are basically worshiping the same God. We're basically, we, we have the same religion. Both of us are trying to make God happy. You just call him God, Jesus, and I call him Allah. And the chaplain responded with a fascinating note. He, re- he said, quote, Christianity is much too pessimistic for that. I'll say it again. Christianity is much too pessimistic for that. And the chaplain went on to explain to his, this Muslim student that Christianity believes that no person has any hope of getting it right apart from the saving power of God. That no person, no matter how hard they try, no matter how devoted they are to turning their life around, no matter how much prayer, how many offerings, how much Bible study, no matter how perfect a life they pursue, no one is going to get anywhere close to pleasing God and being good enough. And what was fascinating is that as the chaplain is writing this, the Muslim student had an assurance, almost a look of relief, as if that was good news. It is easy when we get to a book of the Bible like Judges to read about the people of Israel and say, what is wrong with them? And then we realize that the the reality of evil cuts right down the center of every human heart. 
And every one of our hearts is deceitful beyond imagination. And we have trouble understanding other people's hearts, much less our own. And there's something about reading a book or a book like Judges and a chapter like this where I don't want to see myself in the mirror. I don't want to see that that's what my life looks like. But if I'm honest, if I'm honest, I'm a lot like this priest. Right? Micah comes along and says to this Levite, hey, you want to be my priest? I'll pay you. And the priest says, that's a pretty good deal. I can, you know, do services once in a while and make you happy. And so he goes along with it. And then, and then there's a better offer that comes along. And instead of the Levite saying, you know, I'm committed to this way of life. I'm committed to this person. I'm committed to this thing. The, the Levite priest says, you know what? Yeah. It's a lot better to serve a, a, a bigger congregation. Of course, I want to serve a whole tribe. And I can see in that the, the, the draw to, to bigger and to better and to more attractive and, and those things which draw my heart. And where does it lead? It leads to emptiness and destruction and it leads even farther and farther away from God. And a chapter like this puts smack dab right in front of us. What the, the Heidelberg Catechism knows from its very start. That in order to know the comfort of living with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we belong to him, we've got to know how great our sin and misery are. Not how great the world's sin and misery are. Not how great our neighbor's sin and misery are. Not how great our co-workers' sin and misery are. Not how great our spouses or our children's or our siblings' sin and misery, but ours. And Judges acts like a, a book of the Bible for the people of God to say, you look out at the nations around you and imagine you are better, but if you look at the, the core of your heart, you need saving just like everyone else. Verse 24, if you have your Bible open, is a fascinating question. The Danites have turned to Micah, who's just had his idols stolen, just had his priest stolen. What we might say is just had all of the things that he put his hope and security in taken away from him. And the men says, what's wrong with you? And the and Micah replies, well, you just took everything that I made and my priest. What else do I have? And as I was reading that, I couldn't help but think of the, the thing that I've heard some of you say when I visited with you, either in the hospital or in your homes, 
when you are at the bottom. And it doesn't sound like Micah says, but it sounds like this. It sounds like, I don't know how people without God can make it through this. In other words, when my health has been stripped away, when my family has been stripped away, when my my peace of mind or the security that I've built has been stripped away, and I'm sort of being confronted by the reality of life itself, and the question comes, what do I have? One of the most powerful things that some of you as saints of First Cutlerville have shared is that I don't know how I could make it through this without God. You have known at the the root of yourself, at the root of your life, at the foundation of everything else when it is stripped away, that you have one who rules your life. And unfortunately, in this chapter, Micah doesn't figure that out, and the Danites don't figure that out. But you and I are invited to see that you and I have been given a king, a perfect king. Before we finish there, there's two things that we need to reflect, two pictures I've got for us. You know, the next picture. Many of us imagine that the city of Dan, when it gets built here, is a a little village. But the reality is that archaeologists in the last 100 years have found that Dan, when it was built, was probably a little bit like Chicago. It's a massive city. This is the city gate. And you can see some of the excavations that are going on. And there's a, if you would Google, you could find all kinds of pictures. But the city of Dan is a massive city. And if you go to the next slide, you can see sort of in the middle a, the, a metal outline of an altar. And if we keep reading in the history of God's people, we realize that Dan becomes the center of idol worship in the northern kingdom. That the people of Dan are supposed to settle on the shore. They're supposed to fight for what God has told them to fight for. They're supposed to take the land and receive the gift of God. But when we when they turn their back on God and they decide to go their own way, they settle and they build a city that seems to flourish. But it is at the root of idol worship that eventually ends only because Israel is sent into exile. And so the city of Dan, which they build up, becomes a place that sort of acts as a thorn in the sandal. It's like a a rock in the shoe, which causes a blister to form and a wound to form and fester and causes the people of Israel not to run and walk with God, but to trip and to fall and to marry themselves to false worship and not fix their eyes on the true king, but a false one. 
And Judges acts like a, a corrective to our soul to say that the, the king you are longing for, the king that I have given you, is the true king, Jesus Christ, who has come in the flesh to be rooted and seated and to sit on your throne, the throne of your heart, and to give you a way of life that will not end far from God, not end in idol worship, not end in self selfish living, self-ordered thinking, but a life that is pointing to the one who made us. God knows that our hearts need not only something to draw us forward, but a total remake. God knows that it is only by the power of his spirit that our hearts will become not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. Hearts that will be soft and moldable so that he can sit there so that we can truly pray, thy kingdom come. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we have worked our way through the book of Judges, we have been struck by just how devastating sin is in making a mess of things. And maybe our lives aren't a mess on the outside. Maybe some of us they are, but... But some of us are well aware of the mess we feel inside. God, help us to know that you have come to bring your rule and your order and your gracious reign to our lives and to our hearts. And it's only by opening up our hands and opening up our hearts to let you rule that we find true life. We pray in Christ's name, amen.